0: Welcome to Pelicanus. I'm your host, Austin Parker. Pelicanus highlights the people and organizations that are making it their purpose to grow the conservation field, to make right the wrongs of our past, and to show how people have and still are making a monumental difference in our world. And we want to tell their stories. So we're here to show that not only is there something that can be done, it is being done by dedicated scientists who have made conservation their life, and that we can find optimism through science. Here at Pelicanus, we're proud to announce that we have partnered with the National Park Service to celebrate their centennial, 100 years of America's Best Idea. That means that every episode this year will highlight a national park, focusing on the people and programs that are dedicated to conserving these beautiful parks all across the United States. So today's episode is about Rachel Wollstenholme of Pinnacles National Park in Central California, where Rachel is the condor program manager. This program was created to reintroduce and monitor California condors, a federally endangered species. The history of California condors is an interesting one. Their population numbers became so low that there were only a couple dozen individuals left at most. This program spans the entire western United States, as well as northern Baja, Mexico. So let's let Rachel tell us about her program, and tell us more about these amazing birds.
1: My name is Rachel Wollstenholme, and I am the Condor Program Manager at Pinnacles National Park. The program at Pinnacles National Park is a condor recovery program. It started in 2003, and the purpose is to help create a sustainable wild population of California condors again.
0: So this means that this once was an area that condors inhabited.
1: So condors did historically use this area. There are certain uh, areas in the park that are even named after condors, and they were known to have used this area in the past. It's excellent um, habitat for nesting. And condors nest in rocks as well as in redwood trees. So they're a little unique like that. They don't build nests like other birds do. They use rock cavities. So from Pinnacles, great, great place.
0: Pinnacles is a great place for condors. It's perfect habitat, federally protected land, but we want to know a bit more about California condors. Why are they special?
1: To me, uh, California condors are really unique type of species. They're scavengers, which means they don't catch any live food. They only feed off the remains of other animals that have died or been killed. Condors will feed on whatever they can find, from a dead ground squirrel to a whale that's washed up to uh, local livestock that may have died out in a pasture. Uh, One of the characteristics of condors is that they don't have feathers on their head, and that is of course to help them stay clean when they're going into carcasses to feed.
0: So Rachel did provide us some photos of condors that you can see on our website or social media. But these birds dig around through dead carcasses looking for food. And having a bald head helps them keep their head clean of uh, blood and guts.
1: They're uh, the largest terrestrial bird in North America. So they have almost a 10-foot wingspan, 9.5-foot wingspan. Uh, They're approximately 20 pounds, 18 to 20 pounds.
0: So these are very large, very powerful birds.
1: And we don't even know how long they can live to um, their entire lifespan. Uh, We think it's approximately 60 years, which is really amazing when you think about it. A lot of species aren't living that long. Um, but with condors, because of the reasons why they die, uh, they're not necessarily from natural causes. And so a lot of the birds we lose are much, much younger than that age. But they should be living a long lifespan. They, uh, when they have a nest, they only lay one egg and uh, they dedicate a lot of their attention to that egg. And both parents take turns um, at the nest incubating the egg once the egg hatches, feeding the nestling. So both parents are invested in caring for that one one chick in the nest, and a um, really new fact to me when I got on this program was learning that condors don't even fledge from their nests until the autumn. So we think of most birds being all done and fledging their young by, say, May, June, July. Nope, not for these guys. We'll start seeing courtship in January. Um, they can be selecting a nest into February. And, of course, there's you know plus or minus weeks and variation among different pairs. But we'd expect to see pairs forming, sometimes old pairs that had already been together, sometimes new pairs, sometimes the same nest from a past year, sometimes a new one, new nest location. And then um, eggs may be hatched as soon as... Um, I think it's a 53-day, approximately, incubation period. So that, that seems like uh, the typical schedule of a lot of avian species is, you know, hatching in the spring. But condors remain in the nest, needing their parents' care for a long time, into October, sometimes November, before they'll fledge and leave the nest.
0: How do juvenile condors look different from the adults?
1: Um, I would say that juvenile condors look very, very similar to adults. Um, the main difference would be the color of their head. And so uh, young juveniles will have you know, a dark gray charcoal colored head uh, that matches the rest of their feathers pretty much. Whereas adults, as they age up closer to ages four, five and six, will have a very colorful head, yellow, pink, uh, much much brighter and easier to see, and that's true for both the males and the females.
0: How about this last breeding year? How did they do?
1: There were we started with about seven active nests between Pinnacles and the Big Sur coast, and um, at least three nests have been successful to date. And I think there's at least one of those three nests that we're still waiting to find out if the nestling has fledged. Mm. So we know that one of them already has out on the Big Sur coast. He's out of the nest, flying just like you should. And it's really fun watching them when they first fledge, because they have to practice landing. You know, such a big bird, takes time for them to be as graceful as their parents.
0: Condors need a lot of time in the nest. They're big birds that need a lot of help learning how to get that large body in the air and keep it there, as well as finding food. However, having such individual attention also means that they reproduce very slowly, which makes recovery more challenging. A challenge that requires patience and dedication. But what is the history of the California condor recovery program in the Western United States? How many were left, and how low did it actually get?
1: It was really, really low. And you know, it's funny because different numbers get thrown around, and so then you get afraid to get quoted on a number. But um, so you know, prior to the 1980s, condors were being studied by a very small group of people, and people started to notice that there were fewer and fewer um, being seen. Um, and so it got to the point with a more research-oriented studies, especially in the 80s, that it was recognized that uh, we had a very serious decline happening. And so by, I believe it was 1987, um, just a handful of birds left, or I think Approximately 20 to 25 ish, and a a decision was made to bring those last wild birds into captivity in order to save the species. So first of all, that's a a major decision. Uh, some people were very much against it. Let the species go extinct in the wild. We've done the damage, and and others were like, no, we've got to make every effort we can to try and save the species. Uh, it's a very unique species, and I I'm really glad that that happened. But it was controversial at the time. So. You know, at at that point in time, there was a big question. Well, how successful is captive rearing of these birds going to be? We've never, you know, done it before. So, uh, luckily, it was very, very successful, and zoos did a great job of rearing these young condors. And so, then by the mid '90s, it it was time to try releasing them back into the wild. And so, the um, Southern California program and other programs got started as release sites. To get them back in the wild,
0: but what exactly happened to condors?
1: Um, the cause for the declines that were seen—you know—we even have we've even learned since the releases began um, just how serious certain threats were. Um, if you read in a in a bird book, they talk about uh, loss of habitat and some other issues. Uh, but now we—and when I say we, I mean the whole condor recovery program. I don't mean just Pinnacles have identified that lead poisoning is the number one uh, cause for adult mortality. There's no doubt about it. Uh, We continue to document it. It's a major priority for us here is that uh, we'll get a a very specific radio signal if we have a bird that is not moving, which generally means it's dead, and we get that carcass as quickly as we can, send it to a professional lab to get a necropsy done uh, that answers that question. Uh, Because if you don't know what they're dying from, how can you even help recover them? So um, the the purpose of the condor recovery program, again, beyond Pinnacles, the whole program, uh, wants to see wild population that's self-sustainable.
0: What does self-sustainable mean?
1: What it means is that we're not needing to treat birds from the wild for lead poisoning on a regular basis, and that... Uh, You know, if we walked away right now and stopped monitoring the birds and stopped treating them for lead poisoning, the research has shown that that population is going to go right back to where it was in the 1980s. And we'd lose the time, investment, and the individuals that have been released, which um, there's a number of problems with that situation.
0: How much is known about the cause of lead poisoning?
1: Uh, The other thing we want to do is uh, by researching and working on recovery, we want to learn from that, which we have been, and understand the cause of the lead poisoning, which is due to fragmented lead bullets. Uh, lead bullets act and perform differently than other types of bullets uh, used for shooting or hunting. And because they fragment within a carcass, it's very, very easy for a scavenger to consume small fragments and. The tiniest fragment of lead can create significant uh, poisoning for an individual bird.
0: The presence of lead in the environment has directly affected the populations of these birds. It nearly killed them off, down to just a few individuals. The entire condor recovery program is a massive undertaking. But how extensive is it? How many release sites are part of this program?
1: There are five condor release sites, um, one in Arizona, three in California, and one in northern Mexico and Baja, Mexico. So Pinnacles is one of five release sites where young condors are being released and then monitored and radio tracked. And so one of the ways we ensure that birds come back and we're able to recapture them each year is by setting out bait to keep them interested in our aviary, which also functions as our trap. Because the condors do a great job of finding food across the landscape. They don't need us to feed them, which is definitely um, a a success. I mean, there was a lot of concern after these birds were brought into captivity. 100% of wild birds brought into captivity in the 80s.
0: Every single wild condor was brought into captivity, meaning that this species was essentially extinct in the wild for a period of time. that's pretty scary but what are the effects of such a bold move
1: what's going to happen when you release them are they going to be able to find food was that part of the problem what's going to happen and so it's really exciting that condors are doing what they're supposed to do in terms of management we actually need and want them to come back to the park get some free food stay interested in the facility which is our aviary so we can recapture them and when we recapture them will replace radio tags, put on a GPS tag, uh, check their blood lead levels, treat them if need be for lead poisoning, and um, check their overall health condition.
0: Rachel's program is set up to take in condors from the wild, to give them a regular checkup, to monitor any lead poisoning, among other health checks that they perform. But won't bringing in wild condors and introducing them to humans have a negative impact?
1: You know, condors are uh, known to be very, very smart birds. And so they, they know what the trap means. And there's also been a lot of good, thoughtful care to not have condors associate people with food. We don't want them visiting people's homes. We don't want them uh, associating humans with free food. So, for example, the carcass placement, placing out bait for the trap tonight, happens after dark and condors aren't likely to see us doing that. Um, So we minimize our contact with them. Um, To me, for obvious reasons, but for people who don't know, it's to ensure that they're not seeing a person and thinking, oh, I'm going to get some free food.
0: This issue is called imprinting. All wildlife has the ability to associate food, shelter, and safety with people, which they don't want to happen with the wild California condors.
1: Yeah, it certainly could happen, especially for you know young birds that spend too much time uh, around people. So every condor release site is very careful with how they place out food. Um, there are some sites that believe in supplemental feeding because they think of it as, hey, this is a clean food source for these birds, and we don't want birds to be lead poisoned. Uh, the approach Pinnacles takes is that we know they're eating food from everywhere anyway, no matter how much clean food we put out. So we use the bait as an attractant. Yeah, and lucky for us on the imprinting side of things, when we do handle the condors, and I know you'll get a chance to see that later, um, they are, because they're wild, any handling is horrible and miserable for them, like any wildlife species. They can't stand it, they can't wait to get away, they're probably very scared, and they're very stressed. You know, they can be really dangerous, they have an extremely sharp beak, and so that's, people are really careful handling them. And so any potential for connecting humans with free food that's in the, in the trap, even though we bait it at night, um, is gone when they have to interact with us. You know, They're often getting an injection for, for treatment for lead poisoning. So they, uh, they don't like us that much and that's the way we like it. Yeah, good.
0: <laughs> Where are the condors for this recovery program coming from? Where are they bred?
1: So there are multiple zoos and other facilities that uh, do captive breeding, so I'm going to throw out a few because I don't want to miss any out. So the Oregon Zoo, uh, San Diego Zoo, Los Angeles Zoo, and um, it's interesting, um, late in the summer when they have young birds from the previous year, they'll have a, um, this past year it was around Labor Day in Las Vegas, and um, you know, birds in Idaho aren't necessarily going to Arizona. They might be coming here to Pinnacles or to the Big Sur release site. So people meet up and swap different birds and move them to the site they need to go to. Um, for Pinnacles, we just received five young female birds from Oregon Zoo just in September, and we're expecting one more to come. They stay in our captive facility for a few months. They get to meet some of the wild population in the area through the mesh or even in the mesh if we capture some of the wild birds. And uh, social structure is really important to them, so it's good for them to get a bit habituated and familiar. And then we'll release them um, starting probably in early December this year.
0: In order for condors to survive into the future, they'll need genetic diversity. So when these birds get to their new homes, do they ever intermingle with other populations at other release sites? Uh,
1: The Big Sur release site started in the late 90s, and um, as soon as we started a release site here at Pinnacles, and in fact it was done very much in coordination with that manager, Ventana Wildlife Society, when the release site here started up, there was intermingling of birds released at each site almost immediately, and it has been that way ever since. And so I talk about it as one central California flock. It's made up of approximately 35 birds who are released and managed by Pinnacles and 35 birds that are released and managed by Ventana Wildlife Society in Big Sur. But we catch their birds, they catch ours. The birds mate with each other. Pinnacles birds have nests on the Big Sur coast. Ventana birds may have nests out here. So it's wonderful. It's one flock. And since you asked ultimately about the goal, the other release site within California is in Santa Barbara County. And recently. It has made the program really exciting in that there's been movement between what we used to talk about as the Southern California flock and the Central California flock. And we knew ultimately, um, you know, this is all historic condor range all the way down and through, Um, but it hadn't been filled in yet. And so lately, several birds from Central California have done long distance, 200 mile trips down to Southern California. Um, Some of them gone right to their release site facility there. Some have flown right back in a day. Others have stayed for a few days and come back. Another one went to Mount Whitney before coming back. So um, it's really fun to be able to see those movements because we use traditional VHF radio telemetry to track the birds, but sometimes they go missing, and you search and you search from here to Big Sur. You call folks in Big Sur, and uh, but we have GPS transmitters on some birds. And so you get the download, and, oh, my gosh, they, wow, they went down to Santa Barbara. So that's... Um, really fun and so absolutely one of the goals is having the population grow to the point and especially be self-sustaining to the point where it's filling in historical range and there will simply be one California population. And I would expect in time that the birds released from Baja Mexico would be a part of that.
0: The fact that these birds are now filling in their historical range is truly a miracle. The amount of effort and time and dedication gone into this project has started to pay off. Amazing. Rachel mentioned the way that they track the birds. This allows them to know the behavior of wild condors, which can influence future conservation efforts. How does that work?
1: Uh, so there's a couple of different tools we use to help us monitor the birds and monitor them closely. Uh, The first one are VHF radio um, transmitters. And so what we do, they're small, and we place them on a wing tag. And the wing tag is on the patagium of the bird, uh, which uh, is like a, uh, think of it as a large ear piercing, goes through the skin, not through tissue or anything else, and it attaches onto the wing. And that means when we take one off, one year if the battery is dying on it, and we can replace it with another one and the healed hole remains just like an earring hole. Um, so that's VHF and those are great. They're line of sight and they let us know if the bird isn't moving, um, battery life. Some of them have little solar panels on them. And so those extend the battery life.
0: There are giant birds soaring over California with solar panels on them.
1: Um, so those are, they're a great tool, and many, many wildlife programs use those. The next tool, which instead of costing approximately $300 a unit, costs 3000 to $4,000 a unit, are the GPS tags. And those are also mounted on the wing, and they're also solar-powered. And um, those are uh, incredibly helpful for this program. Uh, condors can fly over 100 miles in a day and then they can fly back to a new location the next day and so to try and monitor them line of sight using the traditional radio tracking can be extremely challenging and uh, the GPS data also gives us incredibly accurate and precise data location and Pinnacles is a small little um, 25,000 acre park where we release condors from but uh, the birds spend tons of their time outside of the park. Um, there are species that relies on private land as much as on public land. And that means we don't always have access to monitoring them closely. So the GPS tags give us this incredible data. We can download it in the morning via satellite and plot their locations on a map. We know if a bird hasn't been moving, there might be a concern. And so those are how a lot of GPS tags have been used by wildlife projects for many years, uh, collars on lions or what have you. There's a new type of GPS tag out that we've also just started using which is really exciting technology and I think has huge potential. Um, It's a little bit less expensive but it's still an investment and it's called GPS uh, sorry GSM technology which might ring a bell to you because it's cell phone technology. Uh, So what it does instead of seeking to connect to satellites, um, the GPS works all along via satellite of course on the bird recording data and instead of sending that data back up via satellite, it sends it via cell phone. Uh, the only key, as one would guess, is that you have to be within cell, cell range. Um, this area is really rural. They have a really good luck in Santa Barbara County and beyond with the GSM cell, ph- cell phone tags, you could call them. Um, we, we love them, they can give us a location every two minutes on the bird so imagine a little popcorn trail of everywhere they go it helps us understand um, areas that are really important for roosting nesting potentially for foraging we get really fine scale data the regular gps tags give us one point per hour that's definitely sufficient to understand accurate home range and whether a bird hasn't been moving but the really fine scale data you can get from these new tags so there's pros and cons but i think the future will be uh using the cell technology. Uh, If I could have a GPS unit on every bird that had a really long battery life uh, that was lightweight and accurate and affordable, we would do it in a second. And it would actually definitely save costs program-wide as well.
0: With the way that technology advances, who knows what the future holds?
1: So Who knows? I just want spot trackers on all of them. Just send me a message when they don't move.
0: A little GoPro that I has know. I'd love feed. it. With all of the dedicated people and their efforts, the science, the technology involved, what is the most important aspect of this project?
1: Uh, one of the most important solutions is outreach about lead as a poison, and about alternatives to using lead ammunition. Um, Pinnacles and other programs are huge supporters of hunting and of ranch management, and carcasses on the landscape are a very good thing for uh, this species and other scavenger species like bald eagles, golden eagles, other raptors, coyotes, coyotes. Um, so we fully support that, and so sometimes gut piles are left out in the field from hunting operations, and sometimes there's pest management on ranches that results in whole carcasses being left on a ranch. And it's great if those are consumed by scavengers. Uh, we just want them to be non lead So the whole program tries to focus on learning and understanding, keeping the individuals alive, working toward outreach, specifically about using non lead ammunition, and then we'll get there. I like to say, Give us 10 years, and we will get there. It takes time.
0: The state of California is phasing out lead ammunition. It is already outlawed within existing condor population ranges, but by July 2016, its use will be greatly restricted. However, by July 2019, lead ammunition will be completely outlawed in California. So if you or anyone you know hunts in the western United States, or anywhere really, We're asking you to please use non-lead ammunition, even before it becomes outlawed. It's already been proven that it has a detrimental effect on condor, individuals, and populations, but it also has a negative effect on wildlife, since it can last in the wild for many, many years. It's obvious that Rachel has a pretty awesome job in an amazing place. But how did Rachel get into wildlife work?
1: Um, well, let's see. I, I would say that um, wildlife work kind of, um, I got really fortunate. I didn't even know the job of doing field work or being a field biologist existed all through undergraduate school. I wouldn't even just didn't even think about it. When I was younger, I was really, I had a chance to do some work outside with outdoor education with sixth graders, and I thought, wow, I can work outside, uh, do something I love, and get paid and make a living doing this, and um, soon after that, I got introduced to a wildlife project out on the Channel Islands, and that opened my eyes even more so, Um, and so I love the outdoors, and so that's what really first, kind of selfish, really first drew me in to be able to do this kind of work. And um, that was in the mid-90s when I first started doing wildlife work. And so since that time, I've had a chance to work on a number of endangered species projects. And not always, but often those include a human component of either that is in need of uh, outreach or a special approach that can help a species survive um, and hopefully recover so that we can, again, step away and watch them thrive in the wild. So loving working outdoors and then getting to work with endangered species that are incredibly unique and the programs are really challenging, um, that's, that keeps me going and happy.
0: Meeting the challenges and having the positive effect that she can have on a species in peril is what keeps her going. But what is it that gives her hope?
1: Kids give me hope. Uh, seeing parents and young kids out on the trail exploring nature uh, definitely gives me hope. I think that's what inspires people to care. And um, you know, some people don't have the opportunity to connect not only with a nice backyard, but with getting to a park. So when I see young families or, or young kids with their families out here, that gives me hope. And then um, talking to different uh, people with totally different backgrounds, and mine are the typical person I meet working for park service, and realizing you have certain things in common um, and when you focus on the common ground you have with different people uh, it does come back to uh, these other folks do care a lot about the same things. I think our education system can focus a lot on environmental awareness and education um, and that's a huge component for our future. And I also think that people need to have experiences outside. Get outside, get dirty, have fun, you know, and hopefully it's really hard for parents, I'm sure, to find time to get their kids out. Um, Aunts and uncles and big brothers and sisters can do it. And hopefully the schools can have field trips for kids. Um, That certainly helped me.
0: Rachel spent most of her life in the outdoors. But what is it about this project that is special?
1: I would say um, there's a few things that really keep me here. One is that I know we can recover the species. And so I want to see that happen. The second one is I work with an amazing group of people. And they're skilled and committed, um, excellent biologists. And a big part of my job is to make sure that we have funding to keep them going with their specific fieldwork. So they keep me motivated, for sure. And then absolutely, I I like the challenge of a program, uh, that um, it's demanding, it's complex. There's a lot of different partners I get to work with, from U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service to other nonprofits. And everyone in the program is dedicated, and that kind of feeds my motivation, too.
0: What is her favorite part of this project?
1: You know, my actually, my favorite part of this job, it's when I bring my nephew here to the park and my niece, and they're, you know, we're 10 and 12 at the time, and I got to see their faces when a condor flew overhead about 25 feet above us. And we heard the wind, its wings were creating before um, even seeing it. And both of them, just their faces were just amazing. And so this project has helped me connect with a new species. And that is uh, just incredibly rewarding. I think California condors and the program to recover them is challenging and unique. And I think it can be a great role model for other highly endangered species because we know the answer for these guys. You know, there's there's some species that uh, we can't make a choice in our daily lives and make a difference for them. But for California condors, we know why they're dying And we know what we need to change to fix that and then we'll get to step away and watch them uh, recover and watch them in the sky and watch them doing their thing which is great and uh, humans owe that to species that we've uh, been the cause of their decline and I'm really optimistic I think people will want to help it's an amazing species and uh, we can we can do a good job and take care of it
0: California condors at Pinnacles National Park and all over the western United States have had an amazing success story. However, this story is ongoing. We all still have plenty of work to do to get California condor populations back up to where they once were. So we wanna say thank you to Rachel and everyone in the Condor Reintroduction Program for doing the work that you do. So if you'd like to learn more about California condors or find out how you can help with these programs, or if you'd like to continue this conversation, you can do it at our website or on our Facebook or Instagram sites at Pelicanus Radio. I'd like to thank Rachel Home for sitting down and talking with me and letting me see her program and meet her amazing team and actually getting in there and holding a condor while they treated it for lead poisoning. Unfortunately, we weren't able to record during this process. While you're handling the condors, you have to be very quiet and very still. But regardless, it was still an amazing day for me. You can find photos of my time at Pinnacles National Park and photos that were provided by Rachel at our website at pelicanus.org. Thank you to Pinnacles National Park and the entire National Park Service. We're very happy and proud to be partnering with them to celebrate the centennial. We truly do believe that they are America's best idea. So stay tuned for more stories from national parks in 2016. And remember, find your park.